This episode sponsored by the Second City Training Center. Find your funny this week with a $20 improv drop-in class at the Second City Training Center in Chicago. Your first drop-in is on us. Use the code TESTDRIVE for a free improv drop-in any Sunday at 7 p.m. For more information, go to secondcity.com backslash TC or call 312-664-3959 to register. It lies within an imaginary circle whose diameter is not more than five miles and whose center is marked by Weaver's Needle, about 2,500 feet high. Among a confusion of lesser peaks and mountainous south side from the west end of the range. You can see Weaver's Needle from the west of Millicent. feet across from a cave. And all, all that gold is yours, if you can find it. Gold. Irradiant, enchanting, elusive gold. Many would say that, much like alcohol, it's the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. Ah, but gold makes monsters of men. The fetid, creeping, diseased type of monster that shows not fangs nor claws but is ever-present, replacing one's shadow, whispering in one's ear. Its power over man is great, its reach long, its allure ageless. It drives some to abandon all reason, and yet others further. Coinage, jewelry, trinkets, eh, the genuine article is in the ground. Many have sought this coquettish ore, despite the perils involved in its prospecting. And for one legendary deposit of it, they've ignored threats of an unforgiving environment, murder, and possibly evil spirits. The deserts of Arizona readily give us some gorgeous views and harshly protect some glistening treasures. But for one old prospector in the late 19th century, the beautifully savage countryside revealed its most precious secret. A mine of almost pure gold so rich that one would be set for several lifetimes. Its whereabouts, however, remain a mystery. For even though the tales say the old man scribbled a crude map of it for some close friends at death's doorstep, it was never located, and never has been. Couple this with enigmatic stone tablets relating to regional history and a mine, Native American tales of spiritual guardian forces, and some questionable deaths of those searching for it over the years. And you've got yourself an American legend, as wild as the time period it started in. Grab your pickaxes and saddle up. We're hunting for info on the lost Dutchman's mine on this episode of Blurry Photos. Hey everyone, I'm your host, David Flora, and I would like to personally welcome you to the show. Hi, welcome. A few quick things before we head out in search of gold. If you haven't done so yet, please head over to my Facebook page and give the show a like. And don't forget to give it a five-star review on iTunes if you like what I'm doing here. 
Also, if you want to support the work that goes into each show, consider becoming a patron on patreon.com slash blurryphotos. And you can check out my store at blurryphotos.threadless.com for t-shirts, mugs, phone cases, all kinds of stuff. To address some recent questions from some of you, my old co-host, Dave Stecco, is no longer with the show. He made the departure announcement on episode 202, Trolls, and his last show was Bullstone 32, so that's why it's just been me hosting and the format is different. Hope that helps clear up any confusion for you. Got a fun show for you. It's a topic that's well known enough to be legendary, but not so well known as it perhaps once was. The Lost Dutchman's Mine has many ingredients that make a tasty stew of mystery. You got adventure, lore, danger, murder, and a blender's worth of fact and fiction all simmering together against the backdrop of America's Old West. In this episode, I'll be taking a look at the legend of the Dutchman's Mine, including its origins and precursors, talk about who the Dutchman was, I'll briefly go over the Peralta Stones and their connection to it, uh, go over some Native American lore from the area, and trace the history of those who went after the mine and those who didn't come back. You can see what you think of some of the deaths associated with this infamous mine, and whether or not there's some kind of supernatural connection. Like any good prospectors of the unknown, let's sift through the facts and the fictions, and see what pans out. Where gold speaks, every tongue is silent. Old Italian proverb. Gold has been sought in the Americas for centuries. Back in our El Dorado episode, we mentioned how far Vasquez de Coronado traveled in search of a city of gold in the 16th century. His pursuit took him from Mexico up through Arizona and all the way over to Kansas, looking for the cities of Cibola, seven cities laden with the precious metal. Historical spoiler, he didn't find them. But part of the Dutchman Mines legend talks about his time in Arizona, and supposed interactions with the Apaches who lived there. According to the tales, the Apache knew of a place where the land held much gold, a small range of jagged peaks in the desert, but refused to help Coronado look for it. They were frightened of disturbing their thunder god who lived there, as he would exact his fury upon anyone who dared trespass, and also that a hole to the underworld was somewhere in there. Coronado brushed the warnings aside and sent his men into the mountains to look for this wealth of undisturbed gold. Things didn't quite work out as smoothly as he'd hoped, however, as his men started vanishing one by one. The scouting party made its way into rough terrain, but the men started noticing that whenever someone ventured away from the group, for even the slightest amount of time, they would not come back. Soon, the mine expedition turned into a rescue operation. But it was for naught, as they discovered the gory remains of their comrades in various spots off the trail, each soaked in blood and missing their heads. 
the survivors ran back to Coronado, presumably to look for new jobs and new pantaloons. And with the terror of the mountains clear before him, he called them Monte Superstition, packed his bags, and moved on towards Kansas. The Superstition Mountains, as they're known today, are more of a rugged collection of volcanically formed rock ranges several miles east of Phoenix. While the Apache certainly settled, or conquered, the region, their precursors, the Pima, probably have more of a claim to naming rights and mythology of the area. Although, from what I found, I don't know that there's a real consensus on the origin of the superstition name. I saw Slanting Mountain in Pima Tales, Wikitsaura in Apache, meaning the rocks standing up, and Sierra de la Espuma by the Spanish, or Mountain of Foam, due to a high brow of white rock running along near the top of the range. In Pima Myths, this marked the height of the floodwaters long ago. What's funny is that the Apache don't have a thunder god, per se, nor do the Pima, I don't believe. Pima do have a myth about an evil spirit named Hawk who lived behind Superstition Mountain, in some versions male, in other versions a female witch. According to the story, he was also called the Devil of Superstition Mountain because he tried to steal daughters from the Pima. One day, Hawk secretly descended into Pima Valley, where the women were busy weaving. He stole one of the daughters of Sua, the shaman, Sua followed Hawk to his home behind Superstition Mountain, where he observed his daughter treated as a servant girl by Hawk. Sua poisoned the cactus wine that his daughter was serving. When he drank it, Hawk died instantly. After that, the world seemed less wicked, but always the Pimas feared that Hawk's evil spirit still lurked behind Superstition Mountain, and they never, never go there. All the gold which is under or upon the earth is not enough to give in exchange for virtue. Plato now Before we get too tripped up by trying to authenticate things, let's get back on the trail of the mine. If the Native American and Spanish tales were the tip of the roots of this legend, then the accounts of the Peralta family of Mexico are the meaty parts of the story's roots. It works better if you don't question that metaphor. The tale of the Peraltas is not a happy one. It begins with a wealthy, respected Mexican family that in the mid-18th century was apparently given a large land grant in southeastern Arizona. It was soon discovered that many parts of that same land held precious metals, namely silver and some gold. Several mines were established in and around the superstitions, including the Sombrero Mine, so named after one unique rocky peak nearby that resembled a hat. As the story goes, the Peraltas made infrequent trips to the mines over the years, mostly due to the looming threat of the Apache in the region. While there may not have been a thunder god there, the Apache apparently still believed the mountains to be a sacred place, a kind of purgatory for the souls of their warriors after death, and they grew increasingly displeased with each appearance of a Peralta wagon train. 
The tension came to a head in 1848 after the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Not only was it the treaty that ended the Mexican-American War, it also granted America most or all of the land in the southwestern states. With that, the mines in and around the superstitions were set to become property of the United States. Well, the Peraltas decided to make one last big effort to get as much ore as they could out of the ground while it was still their land, and outfitted several hundred men to do the job. At first, everything went well, and they loaded the wagons and burrows with bag after bag of ore until they ran out of bags. They packed up and headed for home, but they didn't get far. The Apaches struck, and struck hard. In what would thence be known as the Peralta Massacre, the wagon train was demolished, burrows tore loose and scattered in all directions, and every Peralta miner was killed. Except for 12-year-old Manuel Peralta, who survived and somehow made it back home to tell the tale. In some versions, the Apache then buried what scattered gold they could find and hid the mine entrance. The story of the supposed massacre was relegated to local lore for a time until people started finding bones, bits of tack and saddle, and nuggets of gold in spots near the base of the mountains. This brought the legend to life for some, and meant the Peralta mines were more than a mere rumor. Adding to that was a little story that grew in proportion with each telling about an army doctor named Abraham, or Abram, Thorne, around about 1865. Dr. Thorne either saved an Apache chief's son or cured an Apache village of some kind of disease and was rewarded with a blindfolded trip into the superstitions. When his guide stopped and removed his blindfold, he was at a gold mine which was brimming with ore. The Apaches let him gather as much as he could carry as a reward and then replaced the blindfold and led him back out. Some versions say he tried to locate it later in life but couldn't. Other versions say he kept it a secret, out of respect. Either way, word got out and added to the belief that the superstitions were hiding a fortune somewhere in those ragged peaks. To have gold is to be in fear, and to want it, be in sorrow. Samuel Johnson. I'll circle back to the Peralta story in a little while, because it's not done leaving its mark on this legend. For now, it's time we get to the namesake of this rockin' taco, the Dutchman. Born 1810 in Obersvandorf, Wuttenberg, Germany, Jacob Waltz came to America in 1839, and while it's not known exactly why he came here, 
Records show he bopped around the states for a while before landing in Phoenix, Arizona in 1868. His name shows up in records from Natchez, Mississippi, Azusa Township in California, Prescott, Arizona, and finally in and around Phoenix. During his time out west, he worked in gold mines, became a citizen in 1861, and eventually filed mining claims of his own in the Arizona Territory. In the spring of 1868, he bought 160 acres outside of Phoenix by the Salt River, had a house and chicken coop built, and lived out his days there, eventually signing his property over to his neighbor ten years later, provided he could remain living there and get help when he needed it. You may be wondering, if Waltz was born in Germany, why did he eventually get the nickname Dutchman? Well, if he were telling you where he was from, he'd probably tell you Deutschland, the German word for what we call Germany. Deutschlandman, Deutschman, Deutsch. You see how easy a transition that would be. He was also called Old Snowbeard, owing to his large, bushy, stark white facial hair. As with any legend, there are multiple versions depending on who's telling the tale. The majority seem to say that Waltz was a typical, gruff, hard-boiled SOB of a prospector who'd sooner be friendly with a shot of whiskey and shoot a stranger than the other way around. Some said if you knew him, he was a hard worker and a loyal comrade, just kept to himself a little more than others. Either way, people began noticing how he'd disappear into the mountains for months on end and come strolling into town, get the whiskey flowing out of saloon, and throw down some of the richest gold ore they'd ever seen in payment. Suspicion grew as to just what he was up to when he'd disappear into those mountains. A surly attitude and ill-natured temperance played heavily in tales about how he came to be associated with the mythical lost mine in the superstitions. Once again, there are several versions, but by far the most sinister, tales of how Waltz was out prospecting when he stumbled across three Mexican men in a camp. The men graciously shared their food and water and let Waltz camp with them, telling him about a fantastic mine they'd just discovered and were starting to work. After they showed him its location the next day, he calmly took out his rifle and shot them in cold blood, one by one. He then memorized the location and began slowly working it over the years. With local suspicion high, people began following him into the mountains to see if they could suss out his secret trove. But he was always one step ahead of them, either losing his pursuers in the rough terrain or straight up threatening them at the other end of a rifle. One such man was apparently Dick Holmes, another prospector in the Phoenix area. Holmes had allegedly tried to follow Waltz one day and came around a bend to find the business end of Waltz's shotgun staring at him. Needing no further instruction, Holmes took off back to Phoenix. Some people have tied an 1872 affidavit of claim jumping filed by Waltz to Holmes himself, though he wasn't named in it. In mining claims, a person could file a claim on a mine, and as long as it was being worked... It was, quote-unquote, theirs. 
if a claim wasn't being worked or was abandoned, another prospector could jump the claim and take it for themselves. Sometimes you'll hear that Waltz had a partner, another German man named Jacob Weiser, who helped Waltz initially, but either ran afoul of some Apache or ran afoul of Waltz himself and was killed due to his knowledge of the mine or due to the greed of Waltz. The sinister version of Waltz keeps going. Two U.S. Army soldiers managed to track Waltz to his mine, but couldn't avoid the bullets that were waiting for them in the old man's gun. At one point, some say Waltz wrote to family in Germany, asking for help with the mine. His nephew, Julius, took him up on the offer and arrived some months later. The two worked together for a time, but Waltz began to grow tired of Julius's constant yammering about how to spin the fortune and increasingly frequent boastings about it to others. One day he snapped, put a bullet in Julius's head, tied a chain around his neck and drug him to a shallow grave beneath an overhanging rock. If you believe this series of unfortunate events, the body count for the insanely greedy old Dutchman was growing quite a pace. This might come as a shock to you, but there are a couple versions of how he died as well. During a particularly bad storm in 1891, he climbed a tree to avoid floodwaters, or tried to put his chickens on the roof to save them, and was found sitting in bed. Soaked and chilled to the bone either way, he soon caught pneumonia and died a few months later. His death is a major crux of the legend, as slightly before his passing, he supposedly drew a crude map to the mine for Julia Thomas, an acquaintance, possibly more, who nursed him at her place in his last days. He also told her about some gold he had hidden at his place, which she fetched and put under his bed in an old candlestick box. Just before he died, Julia went to get the doctor and asked a passerby to sit with Waltz while she did. The passerby was none other than Dick Holmes. Waltz died the next morning. The next day's Phoenix Daily Herald read, Jacob Waltz, aged 81 years, died at 6 a.m. Sunday, October 25th, 1891, and was buried at 10 o'clock this morning from the residence of Mrs. J.E. Thomas, who had kindly nursed him through his last sickness. Deceased was a native of Germany and spent the last 30 years of his life in Arizona, mining part of the time, ranching and raising chickens. His honest, industrious, amiable character led Mrs. Thomas to care for him during his final days on Earth, and he died with a blessing for her on his lips. After the funeral, the box of gold under his bed was found empty, and the supposed map was gone too. Some say Thomas never had a map, nor did she go to the funeral, and some say Dick Holmes started telling that Waltz had wanted him to have the gold and seek the mine. Both Thomas and Holmes started trying to find the mine after that. An article in an August 1892 edition of the Arizona Daily Gazette said, A queer quest! Another lost mine being hunted for by a woman. Mrs. E.W. Thomas, formerly of the Thomas's Ice Cream Parlors, is now in the Superstition Mountains engaged in a work usually deemed strange to woman's sphere. She is prospecting for a lost mine to the location of which she believes she holds the key. But somehow she has failed after two months' work to locate the Bonanza, though aided by two men. The story of the mine is founded upon the usual deathbed revelations of the ancient miner usual in such cases. There is also a lost cabin connected with it. Its location is supposed to be a short distance back from the western edge of the main Superstition Mountain. 
Thomas had asked her friends, Reinhardt and Hermann Petrisch, also German, to help her find it. But it was to no avail. Reinhardt had written about their exploits, describing clues in the vicinity of Weaver's Needle, which is what locals were now calling the Sombrero Peak from earlier. After weeks of hot weather and scant water, they gave up. Thomas sold maps to the mine for three to ten dollars each before moving on to Morristown, Arizona, where she eventually died in poverty. The Petrishes continued to look for the mine, but arguments about the supposed directions eventually drove them apart. Reinhardt committed suicide in 1943, and Herman died alone and poor in 1953. Dick Holmes had allegedly told his son, Brownie, that Waltz had wanted him, a fellow prospector, to have the gold under his bed and find the mine, and that Waltz had confessed to the murder of the three Mexican men who originally found the mine. This was all during the 15 minutes Holmes sat with Waltz while Julia Thomas ran for the doctor, because Waltz was having trouble breathing. I guess there was no trouble to talk while you couldn't breathe. Holmes died after unsuccessfully trying to find the mine, and his son Brownie was said to have sold the last of the gold from the box and never found the mine either. You can easily imagine after the Dutchman's death, the rush was on to find this rich mine. Maps began to appear, and at one time there were nearly two dozen authentic ones that were being sold. The treasure was really proving to be elusive. Over the ensuing decade, thousands searched, hundreds more attempted to put the pieces of the puzzle together into a cohesive format. Dozens more wrote books about the location of the mine, and every time a new book was published, interest in searching for it was rekindled. Some of you who have familiarity with gems and minerals know that gold ore bears its own distinctive DNA, bearing traces of the matrix from which it is extracted and has its own individual fingerprint. Some of the ore from the mine that they knew as being from the Dutchman mine was taken down to the University of Arizona and done with electron spectroscopic microscopes and was determined to be not from any other mine in Arizona. It has its own, bears its own distinct DNA and especially not the vulture mine. Gold begets in brethren hate, gold and families debate, gold does friendships separate, gold does civil wars create. Abraham Cooley By the time the twenties had roared, the world was aware of old Dutch Jacob's mythical mine. So-called Dutch hunters started pouring into Phoenix in the Superstition Mountains, each convinced they could be the one to find the unfindable mine. And this is where the legend hit a crossroads of sorts. Had someone found it or not, the lost Dutchman mine might have faded back into local lore. But many people think there was one catalyzing event that launched the story from popular curiosity to legend. In 1931, a man named Adolf Ruth quit his job in Washington, D.C., and headed to Phoenix. He had received a map from his son, who had received it from a man he had helped some way or another in Mexico. 
That man claimed it came from his mother's side of the family, who were Peraltas. Against just about everyone's advice, the 66-year-old Ruth set off for the superstitions with nothing but some supplies and the map. Local rancher and guide, Tex Barkley, had offered to escort him if Ruth could wait a few weeks till he got his cattle shipped off. But the gold bug had bitten Ruth too deeply. He set off for fortune in the midst of the Arizona summer. After two weeks, no one had heard from him. Barkley returned from his cattle drive and immediately went out looking for Ruth. Finding an empty camp in a mountain spot called Willow Spring, he searched the area and found no signs of Ruth, so he rode back in and phoned the sheriff. Posses began searching for Ruth, and even his son Edwin hired a plane to go up and look for signs of him. Nothing was found. Until December of 1931. The Arizona Republic's headline read, Skull believed that a missing prospector found in the mountains. It was identified as Adolph Ruth's skull. And to add to the mystery, two holes were found in it. They were determined to be from a bullet that passed from one side to the other. Not long after, Barclay and the sheriff found the headless skeleton in a nearby canyon. It was Ruth's because they found metal parts he had gotten from a hip replacement amongst them. They also found a letter to his family, a checkbook, part of a note, and his revolver. His note read, It lies within an imaginary circle whose diameter is not more than five miles and whose center is marked by the weaver needle, about 2,500 foot high, among confusion of lesser peaks and mountain masses of basaltic rock. The first gorge on the south side from the west end of the range. They found a monumental trail which led them northward past Sombrero Butte into a long canyon. Travel northward in the gorge and up over a lofty ridge, thence downward past the needle into a canyon running north, and finally into a tributary canyon, very steep and rocky, and densely wooded with a continuous thicket of scrub oak. And at the bottom, he had written, Veni, Vidi, Viki. I came... I saw, I conquered. And just below that, 200 feet across from cave. The Maricopa County Sheriff, J.D. Adams, apparently wrote in a report that after finding the remains, he and a couple other men, including Tex Barkley, tried following the map directions to no avail. He determined Ruth had died from natural causes, either thirst or heart disease, possibly suicide. Ruth's family did not accept that, mostly because Adolf's gun had a full chamber of bullets and had not been fired, and some accounts say the map he was using was nowhere to be found. When questioned, Adams said there was no evidence of foul play, and it would be a waste of time and money to pursue it further. Ruth's death made headlines all over the world, and the legend of the lost Dutchman took flight. Even more treasure hunters flocked to the superstitions, but the mystery of the mine only grew. About 14 years after Ruth's death, the remains of a man named James Cravey were found in a canyon. He had gone looking for the gold, but was also found, as Ruth was, decapitated. It added to a strange trend, for not only was Ruth and Cravey found this way, but so was a man named Elijah Rivas back in 1896. 
He was considered a madman who lived in the mountains and was found with his head a ways away from his body. In the late 20s, some hikers from New Jersey were surprised by a boulder that they claimed had been tossed off a cliff at them from above, and similar reports came in from some deer hunters not long after. In 1937, a prospector by the name of Guy Fink found some gold in the mountains, but a month later his body was found on a trail with a bullet wound in his stomach. The death was officially ruled an accident. John Griffith Clemenson hunted treasure in old mines and wrote about his endeavors under the name Barry Storm. Thunder God's Gold, written in 1945, tells many tales about the Dutchman's mine, intended to be fact. In one part, he claimed to have been shot at by a Mr. X while exploring the superstitions and likened the phantom sniper to a guardian of the mine, possibly the cause of Cravey and Ruth's deaths. The book actually inspired the movie Lust for Gold in 1949, though Storm sued because he didn't like how they used his material. 1951, a Dr. John Burns was found shot in the area, ruled an accident. 1952, a hiker named Joseph Kelly disappeared in the mountains. His remains were found in 1954, a bullet hole in the top of his skull, ruled an accident. 1956, a body was found again shot in the head and with a gun wedged beneath the body. It was ruled a suicide. 1960, a group of hikers found a skeleton at the foot of a cliff. It was identified as an Austrian student named Franz Harrier. It was missing the skull. 1961, two prospectors were found shot to death and buried in the sand in Needle Canyon. 1964, another prospector's body was found, but his skull never was. In 2009, a man named Jesse Capen disappeared in the superstitions while looking for the mine. Friends and family said he had been obsessed with it and had tried for years to find it. His body was found in 2012, wedged in a crevice. As recently as 2010, three Dutchman hunters went missing in the mountains. Their remains believed to have been found a year later. Obviously, the elements can play a major role in prospecting. But many of these deaths reek of foul play and possibly cover-up. Some have even gone so far as to say the spirit of the Dutchman himself or those of the people he murdered still haunt the mountains, protecting the mine or scraping out what revenge they can, one headless body at a time. There are even whispers of a secret organization of Apache warriors who guard the mine and mountains with a vengeance. But the fact remains... This legendary mine has been the cause of many deaths and much heartache. My name is Barney Bernard. I have lived in the shadow of this famous superstition mountain for more than 50 years. During that time, it has been my misfortune to accompany the Posse and helped to bring out the bodies of 15 prospectors who have been killed in their search for this fabulous, wealthy, lost Dutchman mine. Who the killers are, we do not know. We do know that there is never a second when there aren't at least two Apache on guard. 
As a quick add-on to the legend, I'll circle back to the Peralta story and the muchly debated topic of the Peralta Stones. Found in... question mark? By a guy named... question mark? The Peralta Stones are engraved stone tablets marked with symbols and numbers, and some people think it's a map that leads to the Lost Dutchman, formerly the Peralta Mine. Officially, I guess, they were found or acquired by someone named either Travis Tumlinson or simply Jack in 1949 or 1952 or 1956. The uncertainty surrounding their origin leads me to think that whoever said he found these things probably doesn't know Jack about any of it. Anyway, these things are two red sandstone slabs, about eight and a quarter by 14 inches and two inches thick, and a roughly seven by seven inch sandstone heart. One stone has a heart-shaped relief carved in it, which the small heart fits in. When they're placed beside each other with the heart fitted in, there are 18 dots that connect up, thought to be what are called post holes in the style of a post road map which was used in the region around the time of the Mexican-American War. 1847 is written in the heart relief, along with some other symbols and numbers, and the back of that stone has a cross outline carved into it. In conjunction with these, you'll often hear about a few more stones that are said to be connected. Another heart, called the Latin heart, because it's marked in Latin and Roman numerals. Stone crosses, which fit the outline of the one stone's carving and a white sandstone slab called the Priest-slash-Horse Stone, which has on one side, well, it looks like a witch holding a cross over maybe one of the other stones in, a, in the stone heart, and there's misspelled Spanish written on it, and then on the other side, there's a horse, some symbols, and some more misspelled Spanish. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these stones just because they seem completely manufactured though many people believe their authenticity. Many frauds have been perpetrated based on these stones, and people have argued there are inconsistencies with the time period they're allegedly from, including some of the Spanish syntax being wrong, the heart symbol, while certainly used at the time, wasn't terribly common, etc. Some people even think it might have been forged by the Baron of Arizona, James Rivas, who famously forged land grants for himself in the Arizona Territory, these stones perhaps being part of his claim somehow or another. In any event, the stones are actually on display, if I'm not mistaken, at the Superstition Mountain Museum in Apache Junction. The Historical Society knows of about 80 maps to the Lost Dutchman Mine. In fact, the Dutchman never made a map. During his lifetime, the Dutchman told two entirely different stories as to how he acquired the mine. He said that he had a, a trigger-happy, impetuous partner by the name of Weiser, and that they stumbled upon two Mexicans that they mistook for Indians, and in the ensuing gun battle, they killed them both. He told an entirely different story on his deathbed. On his deathbed, he was alone when he found the mine found three Mexicans in possession of the mine and killed the three of them in cold-blooded premeditated murder. He also killed four more men, including his own nephew, to 
to keep the mine hidden a secret. Of the four men that the Dutchman killed to keep the mine a secret, two were U.S. cavalry carrying dispatch from Fort McDowell to San Carlos. The men present at the Dutchman's deathbed revelation attempted to find the mine by reconstructing the Dutchman's deathbed narrative of how he had found the mine. Unfortunately, he died too soon. Dick Holmes hunted the mine from 1891 until 1908, then sent his only son, Brownie Holmes, into the Superstition Mountains for 40 years to hunt the Lost Dutchman mine. They couldn't find it. They simply didn't have enough accurate information. To this day, there are many, many treasure hunters still deeply devoted to the search for the Lost Dutchman mine, including me. And as soon as I get a hip replacement, I'll be back on trail again, searching for the Lost Dutchman gold mine. More gold had been mined from the mind of men than the earth itself. Napoleon Hill People keep talking about the Lost Dutchman Mine as if it exists. That's the beauty of the legend. It's Schrodinger's gold mine. Until someone finds it, it both exists and doesn't exist. There are some questions you can ask yourself in researching such a thing and some critical thinking to be done too. Are gold mines common in that area? A lot of people just accept the fact that, you know, a gold mine could be out there, but technically, from what I read, no, gold mines aren't common out there. There are mines here and there, and some deposits can be found, but geologically speaking, the volcanic nature of the area's makeup is not generally conducive to where a large gold deposit would be found, if that makes sense and if I understand correctly. Apaches did mine for precious metals as early as 1000 CE, but it was for copper and turquoise and cinnabar, not gold. No one has been able to find a record of a Dr. Thorne being in the army at the time. However, there may have been a civilian Dr. Thorne in New Mexico in the 1860s, who was apparently taken captive by Navajo and saw a gold vein, according to one story. The number of times I said there are several versions of the tale should be an indication to you of how this all works. By now, there are countless versions of who Waltz was, where he got the map, and how he kept it hidden. For example, in some versions, Waltz saves Manuel Peralta from a knife fight, and Peralta gave him the map to the gold. In another, Peralta hires Waltz to help mine it, and that's when Waltz killed the Mexicans. One version even said he found it when the stars were aligned a certain way and a moonbeam shone through the eye of Weaver's Needle right onto the mine. 
A key fashioned from the antlers of a white deer would open the lock on the mine. He'd been told to look for it from a desert mermaid, or as they called him back then, a dermaid, and talking roadrunners, rainbow scorpions, and one big anthropomorphic cactus threw him a party when he found it. You figure out which parts of that I made up. Did Waltz have a partner? There's no solid evidence of a partner named Weiser. And some folks believe, with the many tales about the mine, Waltz morphed into another person and got added in, basically working with himself, maybe even murdering himself at that point. Not that they believed he cloned himself or anything, I'm just saying that one version of him became his partner in another version. Was he as surly and murderous as some tales made him out to be? Well, it's hard to say with anecdotes. His obituary spoke highly of him, but speaking ill of the recently deceased would be the work of a real D-bag. One other article does cause the old eyebrow to raise, though. The Arizona Gazette of June 18, 1884 said, About 10 o'clock this morning, word was received that a Mexican by the name of Pedro Ortega had been murdered at the house of Jacob Waltz, one mile southeast of this city. Ortega was shot and killed by a shotgun belonging to Jacob Waltz. Waltz had said someone who was working for him had used his rifle to kill Ortega, then ran off. The sheriff at the time took him at his word and no charges were filed. It's no stunning indictment, but it's a tide of violence with the man. The Adolf Ruth story is interesting and points to some kind of cover-up. Some people have said the sheriff and Tex Barclay killed Ruth and tried to hide the body. Motives were, of course, to get the gold themselves, but also in some versions, simply to protect their property, as previous gold rushes and hunters had caused damage in the loss of cattle, and they didn't want it happening again, or so some stories go. But there does seem to be a handful of wait-a-minutes and hang-ons in that list of mysterious deaths. Circumstances that natural causes doesn't really answer, and truths that may stay as hidden as the mine itself. Some people have questioned whether there was even a mine or not. Could it have been a cache of gold from another mine? Well, there were accusations of Waltz being a thief, as in the story that he was fired from working the aptly named Vulture Mine for suspicion of gold theft, but other stories say he never worked there and robbed stagecoaches and such. The idea of it being a cache is not out of the question, though, especially coupled with the geology not supporting a big mine. There was also an earthquake in 1887 that some folks think may have changed the landscape and hidden the mine or cash for good. Truthfully, the whole thing may just be much ado about nothing. The late 19th century saw a huge battle for supremacy of the newspaper world. Pulitzer and Hearst were furiously print-punching for who would be king of ink, and stories of the Wild West sold papers. In fact, the wilder the West, the wilder the sales. Editor of the Arizona Republican, Sim Zeely, and rancher Jim Bark hunted together for the mine, and Bark is said to be the one to coin the term Lost Dutchman's Gold Mine. 
One of the first written references to a mythical mine in the superstitions was in 1894 by reporter and prospector Pierpont C. Bicknell. A lot of people think this is truly where the legend took shape, as he wrote about two German prospectors finding six Mexicans working a rich gold mine. They killed the Mexicans and then had the richest mine in the world, and it was located in the midst of a rich gold ledge where it can be picked off in big flakes of pure gold. He then sold an article to the San Francisco Chronicle the next year, which echoes the first and adds, The facts and individual statements, although emanating from widely diverse sources and furnished by persons who could have had no possible communication with one another, all agree in a remarkable manner as to the description of the mine, and, what is still more convincing, are unanimous in indicating a particular quarter of the mountains in question as the place of its location. I mean... It's easy to have multiple sources with no connection agree on facts when you're the source of the multiple sources. Anyway, this is how the legend grew. Stories blended with fact, reality mixed with fantasy, and soon everyone had their own hand-drawn map and original clues and ideas for how they'd spin the gold. No doubt like an expedition into the superstitions themselves. This episode was fun yet challenging to put together. Thankfully, it wasn't as dangerous. But this legend now has countless versions and increasingly obscure origins. People have, and do, take this legend very seriously, and jobs, families, and as I recounted, lives, have been lost in pursuit of this supposed gold. People call it a fever, or say the bug has bitten you. But while the phrases are mere metaphors, there are real-life consequences. Stumbling onto a few nuggets might be the worst thing to happen to a person. They might as well be seeds of desire, quickly taking root with a gilded craving in the mind. The tales of old Snowbeard's gold only serve to water that glittering plant as it envelops thoughts and strangles reason. Is there a lost mine or cache somewhere in the superstitions? At the end of the day, maybe. The research I did showed many fallacies and tall tales, but didn't necessarily rule out the existence of something out there. People have claimed to have found it over the years, but to my knowledge, no one has ever retired filthy rich after doing so. It has spawned numerous pop culture references in media, including games, music, novels, rides, shows, etc. It's a beautiful example of how a legend can capture the imagination of the populace. And if it has captured your imagination enough to want to have a go at finding it yourself, there are quite a few things to keep in mind. Firstly, the superstitions are a federal wilderness area, which means if you found it and told them, you'd probably have to surrender it to the government. I'm not so sure it's legal to prospect there anymore anyway. Secondly, we're still talking about the Arizona desert here. 100 degree plus days and in the mountains, freezing nights. Little to no water sources. Mountain lions and wild pigs called javelinas. Shifty, rugged terrain that can crumble or fly out from under you. Scorpions, rattlesnakes, spiny plants pretty good list of why you shouldn't go after this thing. 
but perhaps the last line of the original plaque on the Lost Dutchman Monument in Apache Junction sums it up best. Beware, lest you too succumb to the lure of the Lost Dutchman Mine in Superstition Mountain. That's a Lost Dutchman Mine in a rich, wild, elusive nutshell. Now, if you're itching to strike it rich, I have a map to sell you. You basically turn right at Groaning Rock, walk about 50 paces till you see Dad Joke Canyon, then follow Turrible Creek till you come across a little hole in the ground covered by brush, wherein you'll find a hidden cache of a pond. Alright, I'm going straight for the throat for the first one. There was once a sommelier in the Old West who frequently fell and broke bones. A leg or foot being in a cast constantly caused people to associate crutches with him, but he was also famous for always finishing a good wine and getting upset when others left their glasses undrunk or wasted. Unfortunately, he didn't do too well in the West, due to his temper when his drink was messed with, and he got a knife to the belly in a saloon one night when he went to the outhouse and his bartender, thinking he had left, poured out his glass. Upon returning, he made such a fuss that someone stabbed him to shut him up, and now everyone just shakes their head when remembering the tale of the tossed crutchman's wine. There's a not very well-known mountain range in the Arizona desert that people sometimes go to, but not a lot of people like. It's uninteresting to a lot of people, although it can be informative if you know what to look for there. But beware because many people have died of boredom in the Statistician Mountains. Now this episode gave you plenty of pun fodder, so head on over to the Blurry Photos fan page on Facebook and share any puns it inspired for you. While you're on Facebook, please head over and give the page a like. Give us a five-star review on iTunes. Follow on Twitter, Blurry underscore photos. And on Instagram, Blurry Photos Podcast. Shout out and thanks to the Chicago Podcast Cooperative and the Dark Myths Collective. And speaking of the Dark Myths, yours truly was recently a guest on the Hysteria 51 podcast. John and Brent invited me on to talk about the Phoenix Lights. We had a great time talking about more Phoenix lore down there and comparing the size of things to Walmarts. Check out this promo for these guys. They say... I'm disturbed. From city to city, an incredible hysterical panic spread. This is about to get weird. Join John, Brent, and Conspiracy Bot each week as they clarify conspiracies. The first time euphemism's ever been used in this show, and I appreciate you calling me out on it. Explore enigmas. Disregard all known writing and use my method, which only works on this. Uh, you'll realize it says drink rich chocolatey oval tea inside <laughs> the spaceship under the sphinx and probe the paranormal hold on a second uh, I'm, I'm pointing the laser at the wall now 71 71.1 71.2 admiral bird is here all of this done with the misguided help of the one and only conspiracy bot you're all idiots hysteria 51 is a hilarious expedition into the eccentric stop on my joke i will when they're good listen and subscribe on apple podcasts stitcher or your favorite podcatcher remember the truth is out there but you won't find it here stay woke meet sex
That's the Hysteria 51 podcast, also members of the Dark Myths Collective. And also, if you're a fan of crossovers, I was recently on a Muffed Movies with Dark Mark Soloff and General Ironicus. We started Ye Old Jurassic Park, and that's on the Blastro podcast feed. So check that out when you get a chance. And I think that's going to do it for this episode of Blurry Photos. I have been David, the Dermaid Flora. Adios. Adios.